Well, good morning, everybody. It is good to see you and really good to be with you. Um, obviously, after all that, you know, uh, my name is Steve Jager, uh, and Amy and our kids, we moved here uh, right at the end of July, beginning of August, um, from Illinois, when I joined staff here as the Director of Community Formation, and we have had just such an unbelievably warm welcome and enveloping into the Soma family. Uh, we have, we love being a part of this body with you guys. Um, and actually with that in mind, just because many people have asked me for some updates about this, I know not everybody knows, I wanted to give a little bit of an update on our house situation. I, I hear some laughter, so you probably know what's going on. Uh, I'm pleased to announce that we have heat. Uh, go, yes, praise God. It is intermittent heat at the moment, and we hope for that to be fully mittened heat, whatever that's called, uh, in the not-too-distant future. But uh, we have been so blessed by the love and the care and the provision of folks all through SOMA. Our MC, other MCs, the staff, the elders, the board, um, we have been very touched. So thank you so much for being a part of this church family with us. Um, that generosity is actually a great segue back into the book of Acts. Um, if you have not, if you're just joining us for the first time, or if you're new at Soma, haven't been here for the last few weeks, you might not know that we are in the midst of a sermon series on the book of Acts in the New Testament. And this is a sermon series we've done for a few weeks. It's going to take us way into the, the spring semester. Um, but we have been studying this book, which is the New Testament account of the birth of the church. This is the story of not just the Acts of the Apostles, as the book is called, but the story of the resurrected Jesus giving birth and giving life to the church, his body on earth. So, so far in this series, we have heard Jesus commissioned to his followers in chapter 1 that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on them and that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. We've seen the Holy Spirit come upon that church with power in chapter 2 of Acts, followed by this amazing sermon by the Apostle Peter where 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus through one sermon. Man, I hope that happens today. We'll see. So we have seen the fire come into the soul of this newborn church where they, they begin devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to this deep, life-transforming fellowship that breaks barriers across class and race of all, all sorts of, of barrier-breaking. And they commit themselves to this common life where they share everything. Their, I mean, their community is absolutely red-hot. We've seen God's power in a miraculous healing that takes place through the apostles in chapter 3. We've seen some opposition, strong opposition, begin to come against them by the religious and the governmental authorities that are out there. And we have seen the church respond with bold prayer. We've seen them double down on that fellowship and that commitment to one another and all of this through chapter 4. So basically, everywhere that we've been in the book of Acts so far, the church has just been on a roll. They can't stop winning uh, in spite of all this opposition that is being thrown at them. That is, until today. Today, we are going to hit the first major speed bump in the life of the newborn church. And it hinges on, of all things, honesty, truth-telling. 
Now, on the surface of things, when we read this story, and many of you have read this story before, it's, it will seem like this is a story that really hinges on money and greed. And those are absolutely factors in this story. They're going to be a part of it, but we're going to see very quickly that the heart of this passage is really about holiness, the holiness of God's people, and that's holiness that's seen specifically in their integrity, in their wholehearted honesty and truth-telling. Now, speaking of honesty, I feel like since we're still pretty new here, I should tell you a little bit about us, or at least a little bit about me so you can get to know me. Um, so the way we're going to do this is by, who, who has ever heard of this game called Two Truths and a Lie? You heard of that before? Okay, we've got some hands up. That's good. So I just, I want to play this with you. Bear with me for a little bit. So I'm going to tell you three statements about myself, okay? Two of them are true. The other one is not. And your job is going to be to figure out which one of these things about me is not true. Which one is the lie about Steve, okay? Now, Jiggers, you're not allowed to raise your hands or anything because you're probably going to know these. You better know these. Um, okay, first statement. Don't, nobody needs to vote yet. We'll do that at the end. First statement, I have broken a literally priceless piece of NASA equipment. That's weird. Literally priceless piece of NASA equipment I have broken. Okay. Number two, I have created a computer font, a font on my computer, of my own handwriting. Also kind of weird. Number three, our children are genetically predisposed or at risk of having no adult teeth when they grow up. Super weird. Yeah. All right, so here they are again. I have broken a literally priceless piece of NASA equipment. I have created a font of my own handwriting. And our kids are at risk of having no adult teeth when they grow up. Okay, so you're, you're voting right now on which one you think is false about me. How many people would say the NASA equipment uh, breaking thing is false? One person has faith in me. Wow. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much Thank for thinking that's false. All right, second one, uh, the, the computer font of my own handwriting. How many think that's false? Okay, quite a few of you. All right. Uh, the last one, my kids are predisposed genetically to be missing their adult teeth. Okay, also about the other half of the congregation here. Okay, very good. Uh, you, so you were, you were pretty wise in the NASA thing. I did, I did break something. That's a story for another day. Uh, the false statement here is my uh, computer handwriting font. The true version of that would be, I want to do that. I just don't have the software to do that yet. And I don't think I can justify the expense. So don't worry, babe. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Um, but that other one, yeah, about, about our kids. Yeah, so when I was in high school and I got braces, when the orthodontist took x-rays of my head, he said, hey, have you had your wisdom teeth pulled? And I said, no. And he's like, oh, well, you don't have them. You were born without them. By the way, that's genetic, and you can pass that on to your kids, and they might be missing other random teeth when they grow up. So I didn't tell Amy that before we got married. <laughs> she said that would have been a deal breaker, so I'm, I did that the right way. Yeah. Now, these, these are totally inconsequential things. Though that stuff just does not matter, right? That's like stuff you talk about for small talk at a dinner party. But what if I were to tell you that at a very deep level, I deal with anxiety? Not a clinical diagnosis anxiety, not one that I take medication for, but really a spiritual and emotional problem you might even say disorder, that 
when it's really in gear, makes me quick-tempered and impatient, especially in parenthood. What would you say if I told you that? Or what if I were to tell you that one of the things that I love to do most in ministry is to help people, especially guys, find freedom from porn addiction. Because I myself had to be freed from porn addiction by God in the years following college. Does hearing that kind of give you pause at all? Because both of those things are true statements about me. You know, maybe you appreciate the transparency, but let's be honest, both of those things are pretty consequential statements. That's not small talk at a dinner party about NASA and dentures. Well, what if I were to tell you something else? What if I said that I'm not a perfect husband, but I'm a good husband, and that Amy and I have got a really great partnership in our marriage, and it's built on a super strong foundation of love and respect and trust? But then let's say you come to my front door unannounced someday, and just before you ring the doorbell, you hear my voice inside screaming at the top of my lungs, swearing a blue streak at Amy, cursing her out, belittling her, threatening her, maybe even hitting her. Now that's a different story, isn't it? Because there you were at one point believing, or believing in how I kind of represented myself as a husband, but then you catch a glimpse of this different reality behind a curtain and you would see that I'm somebody totally different, somebody abusive, somebody deeply damaged and damaging to others. Now, for the record, that is not true of me. Amy and I do have a very strong foundation in our marriage. We have love and respect and trust. We have a great partnership. I don't treat her in those ways. But think for just a moment, what if that were true? And what if that came out in, into the public? What would be the impact of that coming out into the public? Now, obviously, there would be horrible and destructive consequences for every member of our family if that were true. But what about us? What about Soma? What would be the impact on our life as a church if that were true about me? What about inside these walls as we reel from the knowledge that that's true of somebody on staff and we have to figure out what to do. What, what would that mean for Soma's reputation outside these walls in the community? Can you imagine the damage that would inflict on the reputation of our church, on the witness of the gospel, especially to non-Christians, but even to Christians who are struggling with their faith? The damage to or sin like that is so heinous, not just because it's destructive on its own, but because of how deceitfulness amplifies its destructive power. Every one of us is way tired and done with deceitfulness, I think. That is true of politics, and that is just as true of the church. And in both politics and religion, the two great Thanksgiving Day discussion items, it's deceit among leaders in particular that causes the most hurt and damage. Most of us could probably name multiple stories, multiple names of people, names of leaders, who have presented themselves in one way to the public only to be found out to be a very different person behind closed doors. And the damage to their personal communities and to the witness of the gospel through them is 
incalculable. Friends, the stakes for our honesty, for our integrity, for our holiness, they are so high. And that's what we're going to read about in Acts chapter 5 today. So I want to invite you to turn with me there right now, the beginning of Acts 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to grab one of those red ones, and we're going to start on page 970. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You've not lied to people, but to God. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead, and a great fear came on all who heard. The young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out, and buried him. Now about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell the land for this price? Yes, she said, for that price. Then Peter said to her, why did you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Instantly, she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. And then great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things. This is the word of the Lord. And isn't it kind of weird to say, thanks be to God for that passage? And that's sort of the point today. Doesn't it feel difficult and strange to thank God for a story like that in his word? If that's the way you feel, you are not alone. This, there's a long history of scholars and pastors and students and Christ followers wrestling with this passage and trying to figure out what on earth is going on here. Well, last week, Brandon took us through the end of Acts chapter 4, this passage that is just bubbling over with amazing generosity. Today, we get its evil twin. And when Brandon was, was laying out the preaching schedule for the Acts series a long time ago, he read Acts 5 and he thought, this sounds like a great passage for Steve to preach. <laughs> so I want to return the favor, and if I say anything controversial today at all, you just bring it right to him, okay? <laughs> Lay it at his feet, and we're going to go from there. All right, so here's, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we'll approach this today. Basically, there are two parts to, to this message. First of all, we're just going to walk through the text, and we're going to notice some important things, and we're going to draw out some important connections from other parts of Scripture. And then the second part is just going to be me urging all of us toward a particular response. It's a response that's found in three parts, but it's one response that I think is an invitation from God to all of us today through this passage. Now, just so you know, despite what you heard from Dave a few minutes ago and even from uh, what Robin was talking about a few minutes ago, this is not a sermon about generosity. Now, generosity is the context for this passage, and our response to this message is probably going to involve generosity or money in some way. That makes a lot of sense. But this is about something that undergirds our generosity. It's far deeper than generosity, and it's 
it undergirds, it, it's the foundation for so many aspects of our discipleship to Jesus. So let's take a look at this. The very first word of this passage in most translations is the word but. And that but immediately is setting up a contrast with the passage that happened right before this one. The Acts 4 church, we were just talking about it, it's, it's known for its generosity, its crazy generosity. People don't live the way the Acts 4 church was living. Generously giving things, to selling stuff, having everything in common. And then this person, Barnabas, he's held up as sort of the epitome of that, uh, of, of that congregation of people, the epitome of that culture. And now by contrast, but, we get Ananias and Sapphira. And they're living in the same church culture. They might be demonstrating some of the same external actions as the other people in this church. But their story could not be more different from Barnabas's. They're like the anti-Barnabas. In verse 2, we start to see how that's the case. Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. We don't know exactly what it was. He sold a thing that he owned. However, he kept back part of the proceeds. That word there for kept back, it means just that. He, he's keeping back or he's holding back some money. Usually when that word is used in, uh, in Greek, it has to do with money or finances in some way. What's significant, though, is where this word also shows up in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That's the, the Old Testament translation that most Jews would have known, and pretty much all of the Gentiles who were familiar with Judaism, they would have known this translation. So in that translation, this word for kept back, it shows up in a few places, and very particularly in Joshua chapter 7, there's a story from the period of Israel's history when they were entering the promised land. They had just conquered the city of Jericho and they have taken away its spoils. And a big part of that story is that they are setting apart those spoils. They're devoting them to be an offering to God. What that means is that they're going to burn it all down, basically. They're devoting it to destruction because these are the evil, wicked Canaanites. We, we are not going to use this. We are consigning them to oblivion. But in that story, right after the, the conquest of Jericho, there's a man named Achan who sneaks and hides some of those spoils, some of those set-apart things for his own gain. And actually, what Joshua chapter 7, verse 1 says is that Achan kept back some of the devoted things. It's the same word that's being used for Ananias and Sapphira's actions in Acts chapter 5. Now, in Joshua 7, it's, it's discovered what. Achan has done, and God commands that he be summarily executed immediately. And Israel does that. They stone him to death right there. It's not an exact parallel to what we're reading here in Acts 5, but it really does seem like Luke is drawing a comparison. He's making a connection here. And we're going to come back to that connection in a minute, but for now it's enough to see that that is a very significant undertone in this passage. The next thing that I, that I want us to notice is in verse 3, and it's when Peter confronts Ananias and he cries, why has Satan filled your hearts? Now, maybe you picked up on this. You definitely would have picked up on this if we had read everything back through chapter 4, but where the Acts chapter 4 church had the Holy Spirit, you remember what, what it said about them? They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And where the, the Acts 4 church was filled with the Spirit, 
It was leading them to deep fellowship and amazing generosity. At the same time, Ananias and Sapphira have been filled with a very different spirit, the evil one. And that leads them down a path toward greed and toward deceit and eventually to death. Now, I think it's an open question whether or not Ananias and Sapphira were actually genuine Christians, whether they were followers of Jesus. I think they actually were. I think that that can hold from the text that we've got. But whether or not they really knew Jesus, it's beside the point. The point here is that Ananias and Sapphira had allowed Satan into their inner being. They gave him access. And whatever exactly that entailed, the result was their choice to keep money back and to be deceitful about it. In verses 3 and 4, we start to get to the heart of the matter. Peter says, you have not lied to men, but to God. Specifically, this is really important to see, specifically the sin of Ananias and Sapphira was not keeping some money from the sale of their property. They are not condemned for keeping money from property that they owned and then sold. What they were condemned for was alleging that what they gave to the church was 100% of what they had earned in that sale. And regardless of who they thought they were deceiving, whether it was Peter and the apostles or the, the church at large, who they were really deceiving was tantamount to God himself. And this is so important, friends. Ananias and Sapphira were not judged for not giving everything that they could have given, but for misrepresenting their gift as 100% when it was really less. And Peter continues like this. He says, wasn't it yours before? And after you sold it, wasn't the money all yours to do with whatever you wanted to do? So Peter is hammering home something that we saw in the text last week, that our giving is entirely voluntary. The Acts 4 church, Barnabas at its head, they were giving completely on their own under no compulsion but love. They were giving out of love and joy and the generosity that just exploded out of them by the Holy Spirit dwelling inside them. I encourage you, go back and listen to Brandon's message if you weren't here last week or if you just need to listen to it again, it's online. There was another option for Ananias and Sapphira. They could have said, hey, church, you know what? We, we owned this property. We decided to sell it because we saw everything that's going on around here. We're just really inspired by you guys. We, we wanted to sell it. We decided we, we're not going to give all of the money, but we're giving this portion of it, and we're giving it honestly, freely, and with joy. They could have done that. That would have been absolutely fine. The church would have celebrated the amount of money that they gave. Now, maybe there were cultural, other cultural pressures there about giving that we don't really know anything about. But here's the thing. Peter himself, Jesus' hand-picked successor to lead the church, he is saying that their giving is voluntary. So Ananias and Sapphira had absolutely no excuse for what they did. In verse 5, we get to one of the hardest problems that we're going to encounter in this passage. And it's where it says, When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead. So essentially, it's the same words that are used for Sapphira in verse 10. We might feel a desire if we're reading this passage, if we're sharing this passage with another person, to have some kind of naturalistic 
medical explanation for what happened here. Like the, the shock of Peter's confrontation caused a heart attack or stroke or something like that. Maybe that's feasible you know, for one of them. I think it's a lot less likely that two people could just drop dead like that. We also might feel a desire to try and explain away this instantaneous smiting from God, right? Do you, do you feel that? Is that a little bit awkward and hard in there? Because it's really uncomfortable. How does this God of grace and forgiveness that we claim to know and worship, how does he do that here in this situation? This on-the-spot judgment is absolutely shocking. We ought to be shocked by it because that's the point. Luke's message, Luke, the author of Acts, his message here is that however this death came, whatever naturalistic explanation there might be, its timing was tied directly to their sin. We are meant to see it as God's judgment. Now, there's one more thing to note that I want us to note about this passage. Jumping down to verse 9. When Sapphira enters the picture and Peter confronts her, instead of asking her the same question he asked her husband, why did Satan fill your heart? He asks, why did you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Now, first, it's making it pretty clear, the beginning of the passage did too, that she was in on the plan. She's not just the, the hapless victim of her husband's bad choice. But second, this language of testing, testing God's Spirit, it takes us back to the Old Testament again, and actually not far away from that story of Achan that we looked at before. After the exodus from Egypt, a major chapter of Israel's history, most of you are going to remember this, is their, the story of them wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years because of their disobedience to God. And that disobedience continues throughout those 40 years, and when it happens, it is described, perhaps you remember this, as them testing the Lord. So while this is not, again, a direct parallel there are some really strong echoes here between the birth of the church and the birth of ancient Israel. Both of them came to be through this exodus event that brought about their salvation. Israel is, is saved from slavery in Egypt. The newborn church, the, the followers of Jesus, they are saved from their slavery to sin. And then both of them are in the midst of their coming into a new land in some way with this brand new mission that they have been given by God. Israel has been given this mission to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation out there in Canaan, this land that they have been promised. And then the church has been commissioned to be witnesses for Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The land is a whole lot bigger now that they have been promised. That side-by-side -side picture helps us to understand why God did what he did. Why he brought such strong and immediate judgment on Ananias and Sapphira. Both newborn Israel and the newborn church were in pivotal moments of their history. This was a critical time. The Lord acted in both cases to protect them from, the spiritual, from spiritual threats that were coming at them that they were not prepared for. They weren't ready for these things. The fundamental issue that was being faced here in this story of Ananias and Sapphira, the fundamental issue is not money, it's not generosity, and even though we've been talking about it, the fundamental issue 
is not even honesty. The fundamental issue here is holiness. Like Israel, the church was being called, and we are still being called, to be holy as God is holy. To be holy is to be set apart, to be unique, to be distinct. And for God's people to be holy means that they are set apart from the rest of the world in their character and in their commitments, serving the Lord, becoming like the Lord, reflecting the glory of the Lord out into the world. God's holy people should treat money and resources differently than the rest of the world. God's holy people should live with a generosity that just outshines the rest of the world, puts the rest of the world to shame. God's holy people should be known for a kind of character that has impeccable, unimpeachable honesty. Those are all aspects of what it means for us to be holy as God is holy. And because the newborn church is in such a tender spot, in such pivotal circumstances in Acts chapter 5, just like Israel so many thousands of years before, God acts in an extraordinary, unusual, unique way to preserve them. Ananias and Sapphira, their deceit represents an unprecedented threat to the church's holiness. Since Pentecost, there had been different kinds of threats coming from the outside, but all of a sudden, the church is facing a new threat from the inside in this unholy deceit that happens to involve money. And so, God intervenes dramatically and drastically to preserve the holiness of his church and to show how seriously he takes sin and therefore how seriously we should take it as well. That is why this episode is so striking and also why it's so unique in the church's history. We don't read a story like this again. Now, my hope is that I've made the passage a little bit clearer, not muddier. I hope I succeeded in that. But we can't just end there. Because how are we supposed to apply this in our lives? Clearly, the point of Acts chapter 5 is not to say, well, Ananias and Sapphira were greedy, so don't be greedy. Or Ananias and Sapphira lied, don't lie. That's a little simplistic, and that's also not the gospel. That's not the way it works. That's all. The cause of their judgment was not their greed. We do see that it was their lying to God. But here's a question that we really need to ask. Why did they lie? Why did they lie in the first place? What drove Ananias and Sapphira to concoct this conspiracy and to be so deceitful? If we know the answer to that question, we might be able to discern similar dangers happening in our own lives. And I think that is where the rubber meets the road for us today. So on one level, the passage gives us an answer to why. You know, Peter said that they allowed Satan to fill their hearts. But what was it in their hearts that Satan, began, that, that Satan took a hold of? Or what was it in their hearts that began to follow the temptation that he put there? What were the internal challenges that they were facing that we might also be facing today? What do we need to be aware of in ourselves, about ourselves, that could open us up to the same kind of danger that they faced? Well, I'd like to suggest three things. Here's that three-part response. Three things that could have been in the picture operating for Ananias and Sapphira. We just kind of have to speculate a little bit, but which are definitely 
operating for us. I can say that with great certainty. So among the many features of our interior world that we could talk about, we can think about images and attachments and compulsions. Images, attachments, and compulsions. And there's an invitation to us through this passage from God today to examine where and whether those things might be operating. And since Acts 5 talks about money, I think it's appropriate for us to use the language of an audit. That's a very financial, fiduciary-sounding term. So what I'm proposing to you today is a spiritual audit. An audit that you can run, maybe without generosity or giving in mind. It could be much broader than that. But you could also think specifically about that. Your giving practices here at the end of the year or just moving forward. So first of all, let's, let's talk about this idea of images. This is pure speculation about Ananias and Sapphira, but I think it's reasonable to assume that part of their motive for doing what they did, for lying about their giving, was that they wanted to maintain some kind of image in the eyes of other people. Maybe they wanted to present an image of just being super generous and sacrificial so that they would fit in with their fellow members of the Jerusalem church. So there's kind of an identity thing going on here too. They want to present this image of these people because I want to be one of these people. Okay, that's an image. Maybe they wanted to be perceived as good givers because that sounds like a spiritually mature thing and they wanted to be thought of as spiritually mature. Maybe they wanted to project an image of just having wealth and resources. And maybe that was as crass as just being a status symbol for them or maybe they were people who wanted to enjoy God's abundant blessings in their life. Now, I realize that the way I phrased those, it made them sound mostly positive, maybe painted them as sympathetic characters. Maybe I'm being too charitable toward them. But maybe those images that I just gave or others resonate with you. Because we all struggle with presenting an image of ourselves to others. In a spiritual audit, we take some time to notice what are the images of ourselves that we are very concerned that we present to the rest of the world? And I would even say the images that we're most concerned to present to the church or to the world as us being Christians. What's the image of a Christian that I am trying to present? That's the first part of a spiritual audit. You just need to spend some time journaling, praying, thinking about that. Second part, let's talk about attachments. Now, attachments are exactly what they sound like. They are people or things or ideas or emotions or whatever that we become attached to in a way that we are only meant to be attached to God. Our souls attach themselves. They attach us to things that we believe are going to give us life in some way. But anything that is not most deeply attached to God, where He is the anchor, He is the taproot, it's going to leave us dry. It's going to leave us unsatisfied. It's going to lead us to death, not to life. And it could be that Ananias and Sapphira were just straight up attached to money. It could be that. Maybe they couldn't give up an attachment to whatever this property was that they sold, and so they tried to grab onto it, try to hold onto it in the form of this money that they received for it. We have no way of knowing. But one way that we might be able to discover our own attachments around money specifically is by looking at what we value money for. 
when Amy and I do premarital counseling with couples, there's this exercise that we run through called the meaning of money. Very creative. And in this exercise, it gives couples the chance to go through this little uh, list of statements and each of them separately rate how much they agree or resonate with this, this statement. And it's, it's about how do you use money. And at the end, you tally all the scores up and then you get to compare husband to wife, what, how are we valuing and looking at money differently? And the way that this exercise works, it, it talks about valuing money for status, valuing money for, oh, I lost my spot here, I can't remember. You, do you remember this is in prepare? Status, enjoyment, security, and then control or power. Okay, those, those four things. If you're interested in looking into that, I, I've, I've got that exercise. I could totally give it to you. It's completely fine. It's an exercise worth doing just to investigate where do I have some attachments around money? If I value security that much, what am I attached to that's making me value it like that? Okay, finally, third part of the spiritual audit. Let's talk about our compulsions. Compulsions are those motivations that drive us underneath the surface. Now, sometimes we can actually be aware that our compulsions are engaged in some way, but we feel totally unable to do anything about them. That's why it's a compulsion. We're compelled to act in a certain way. We feel like we don't have a choice. We have to obey them. And if you've ever been in a place like that, man, do you know how frustrating that is. It makes me think of Paul in Romans chapter 7. What I want to do, I don't do. The good that I want to do, I don't do. And the sin that I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. Regarding money, whether we give something or whether we don't give something, it doesn't matter. Compulsions are operating under the surface to drive that decision-making, to give or not to give. So to start to get at these things, you can use a spiritual audit to take stock of a couple of things. And let's talk about it for right now, just in terms of money and, and generosity. When you learn about a need that's out there, is your behavior about that need reactive or is it receptive and responsive? So here are your two options, reactive or receptive and responsive. So I'm reacting to a need out there when I, do, when I try to meet it or I pull away from it impulsively. I'm not even thinking about it. It's just a gut reaction. But and when I'm operating in a place like that, my images and my attachments they are controlling me underneath the surface. They're a part of the compulsion that's there. But now, on the other hand, if I can receive this need with faith that God is already at work there, far beyond me, I am more able to respond in faith. Whether that response in faith is to give something or it's to not give anything. That is living free of compulsions. I can still give quickly, I could even still give generously, even sacrificially, but it's not impulsively. It's not driven by forces that I can't control. There's so much more that we could say about all these things, but let me repeat, there's an invitation, a gracious invitation to all of us here today. It's not an invitation to fear or judgmentalism around money. Instead, this is an invitation to notice some things. An invitation to notice what's going on under the surface of our lives. What images are you trying to project of yourself with respect to money? 
What attachments are like the ropes and the anchors that are wrapped around your generosity, doing different things to it? What compulsions are driving your giving or your not giving that Jesus could free you from? Ananias and Sapphira are a master's class in how not to give. Let's take God's invitation together to something that's so much better. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would give us courage and you give us clear-sightedness for this response of a spiritual audit. Lord, would you help us to see what images we're chasing after or trying to construct for others to see, even for our own church family to see. Help us to discern what we've become attached to in a way that we are only in a way that we're only meant to be attached to you and help us to detach from those things. Help us to notice our compulsions, what it is that's driving us without even thinking about it. And Lord, as you reveal these things to us, would you heal us, helping us to release them, helping us to turn to you and to find healing in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so we also pray these words of a traditional corporate prayer from the third Sunday of Advent where we find ourselves right now which just seems to fit this passage and our needs so well. Stir up your power, O Lord, and with great might come among us. And because we are sorely hindered by our sins, let your bountiful grace and mercy speedily help and deliver us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be honor and glory now and forever. Amen.